Chapter Ten of the Ultimate Weapon by John W. Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sadly, the convalescent Greth Kakay listened to the reports of his lieutenants. More and more disgraced he felt as he realized how badly he had blundered in reporting the people of this system unable to cope with the attacker's weapons. Gerth Kakay looked up at his old friend and physician, Mirth Skull. He shook his head slowly. I'm afraid, Mirth Skull, I'm afraid. We have perhaps made a mistake. The better and the stronger alone should rule. Aye. But is the stronger always the better? I'm afraid we have mistaken the truth in assuming this. If we have, then may Jarth, Lord of Truth and Wisdom, punish us, mighty Jarth. If I have mistaken in following my judgment, it is not from disobedience. It is lack of thy knowledge. The strongest, they are not always the better, are they? Mirth Skull bent sharply over his friend. Quiet thyself, Greskakay. You know and I know you have done only your best, and surely Jarth himself can ask no better of any one. You must rest, for only by rest can those terrible burns be healed. All your steen over half the body area was burned off. You have been delirious for many days. But Mirthskal, think, have we disobeyed Jarth's will? It is, we know his will that only the best and strongest shall rule. But are the best always the strongest? An imbecile adult could destroy the life of a genius-grade child. The strongest wins, but not the best. Such would not be the will of Jarth. If we be the stronger and the best, then it is right and just that these strange creatures should be destroyed, that we may have a stable world of stable light and heat. But look and see with what terrible swiftness these strange creatures have learned. May it not be they are the better race, that it is we who are the weaker and the poorer? Can it be that Jarth has brought us together that these people might learn and destroy us? If they be the stronger and the better, then may Jarth's will be done. But we must test our strength to the utmost. I must rise and go to my laboratory soon. They have it set up. Aye, they have, Greshkakay, but remember, the weak and the sick make faults the strong and well do not. Better that you rest yourself. There is little you can do while your body seeks to recover from these terrible burns. You are wrong, my friend, wrong. Don't you see that my mind is clear, that it is the mind which must fight in these battles, for surely the man is weak against such things as his infra-X radiation." Why, I am better able to fight now than are you, for I am a trained fighter of the mind, while you are a trained healer of the body. These strange beings, with their stiff arms and legs, their tender skins, and, and their swift minds, have fought us all too well. If we must test, let it be a test. I have heard how they so quickly solved the riddle of the crumbling field. That took us longer, and we designed it. The Council of Worlds put me in command. Let me up, Skull. I must work. Concerned, the physician looked down at him. Finally he spoke again. No, I will not permit you to leave the hospital ship. You must stay here. But if, as you have said, 
the mind is what must fight, then surely you can fight well from here, for your mind is here. No, I cannot, and you well know it. I may shorten my life, but what matter? Death is the end toward which the chemical reaction life tends, quoted the scientist. You know I have left my children. My immortality is assured through them. I can afford to die in peace, if it assures their welfare. Time is precious, and while my mind might work from here, it must have data on which to work. For that, I must go to the laboratories. Help me, Mirth Skull. Reluctantly, the physician granted the request, but begged of Greskake a promise of at least six hours' rest in every fifteen, and a good sleep of at least twenty-seven hours every night. Greskake agreed, and from a wheelchair conducted his work, began a new line of experimentation he hoped would yield them the weapon they needed. Under him the staff of scientists worked, aiding and advising and suggesting. The apparatus was built, tested, and found wanting. Time and again, as the days passed, they watched Greskake gaining strength very, very slowly, taken away despondent at the end of his forty hours of work. A dozen expeditions were sent to Jupiter's poles to watch and measure and study the tremendous auroral displays there, where Jupiter's vast magnetic field sucked in countless quintillions of the flying electrons from the sun and brought them circling in in a vast, magnificent display of auroral ionization. Expeditions went to the great southern plateau, the plateau of storms, where the titanic air currents resulted in an everlasting display of terrific lightnings, great burning balls of electric force floating dangerous and deadly across the frozen, ultra-cold plain. And the expeditions brought back data. Yet still Greskake could not sleep, his thoughts intruding constantly. Hours Mirth Skull spent with him, calming him to sleep. But what is this constant search? It is little enough I know of science, but why do you send our men to these spots of wonderfully beautiful but useless natural forces? Can we somehow, do you think, turn them against the people of these worlds? Softly the old Myron smiled. Yes, you might say so, for look, it is the strange balls of electric force I want to know about. Storr had few, but occasionally we saw them. Never were they properly investigated. I want to know their secret, for I am sure they are balls of electric force, not vastly dissimilar from the nucleus of the atom. Always we have known that no system of pure electrical forces could remain stable. Yet these strange balls of energy do. How is it? I'm sure it will be of vast importance. But the direct secret I hope to learn is this. What can be done with electric fields can nearly always be duplicated or paralleled in magnetic fields. If I can learn how to make these electric balls of energy, can I not hope to make similar magnetic balls of energy? Yes, I see that would seem true. But what benefit would you derive from that? You have magnetic beams now, and yet they are useless because you can get nowhere near the forts. How then would these benefit you? We can do nothing to the forts because of that magnetic shield. 
Could we once break it down, then the fort is helpless, and one or two small atomic bombs destroy it. But we cannot stay near, for the terrible infra-X-rays of theirs burns holes in our ship and in our men. But look you, I can drop many atomic bombs from a distance where their beams are ineffective. Suppose I do make a magnetic ball of energy, a magnetic bomb, then I can drop it from a distance. We have learned that the power supply of these forts is very great, but not endless, as is ours now, thanks to the vast supplies of power metal on this heavy planet. Then all we need to do is stay at a distance where they cannot reach us and drop magnetic bombs. Ah, they will be stopped and their energy absorbed, but we can keep it up day after day and slowly drain out their power. Then, then our atomic bombs can destroy those forts and we can move on. But suddenly the animation and strength left his voice. He turned a sad, downcast face to his friend. But Mirth Skull, we can't do it, he complained. Ah, now I can see why you so want to continue this wearing and worrying work. You need time, Greskake, only time for success. Tomorrow it may be that you will see the first hint that will lead you to success. Ah, I only hope it, Mirth Skull, I only hope it. But it was the next day that they saw the first glimpse of the secret and saw the path that might lead to hope and success. In a week they were sending electric bombs across the laboratory, and in three days more a magnetic bomb streaked dully across the laboratory to a magnetic shield they had set up and buried itself in it to explode in brilliant light and heat. From that day Greshkake began to mend. In the three weeks that were needed to build the apparatus in the ships, he regained strength so that when the first flight of five interstellar ships rose from Jupiter, he was on the flagship. To Phobos they went first, to the little inner satellites of Mars, scarcely eight miles in diameter, a tiny bit of broken metal and rock, utterly airless, but scarcely more than 3,700 miles from the surface of Mars below. The Mars Center and Dean Moore Forts were wasting no power, raying a ship at that distance. They could, of course, have damaged it, but not severely enough to make up for the loss of their strictly limited power. The photocells had been working overtime. Every minute of available light had been used, and still scarcely 2,100 tons of charged mercury remained in the tanks of Mars Center and 1,950 in the tanks at Dean Moore. The flight of five ships settled comfortably upon Phobos, while the three, relieved of duty, started back to Jupiter. Immediately work was begun on the attack. The ships were first landed on the near side, while the apparatus of the projectors was unloaded. Then the great ships moved around to the far side. Phobos, of course, rotated, with one face fixed irrevocably toward Mars itself, the other always to the cold of space. Great power leads trailed beneath the ships and to the dark side. Then there were huge water lines for cooling. On this almost weightless world, where the great ships weighed hundreds of thousands of tons on a planet, weighed so little they were frequently moved about by a single man, the laying of five miles of water conduit was no impossibility. 
Then they were ready. Mars Center came first. Automatic devices kept the aim exact as the first of the magnetic bombs started down. At five-second intervals, they were projected outward, invisible globes of concentrated magnetic energy, undetectable in space. Seven seconds passed before the first became dimly visible in the thin air of Mars. It floated down. It would miss the fort, it seemed, so far to one side. Abruptly, it turned and darted with tremendously accelerating speed for the great magnetic field of the fort. With a vast blast of light, it exploded. Five seconds later, a second exploded, and a third. Mars Center signaled scoffingly that the bombs were all being stopped dead in the magnetic atmosphere after the bombardment had been witnessed from Earth and Luna. An hour later, they gave a report that they were concentrated magnetic fields of energy that would be rather dangerous if it weren't that they couldn't even stand in the magnetic atmosphere. Three hours later, Mars Center reported that they contained considerably more energy than had at first been thought. Further, which they had not carefully considered at first, they were taking energy with them. They were taking away about an equal amount of energy as each blew up. It was only a half hour after that that the men of Mars Center realized perfectly what it meant. Their power was being drained just a little bit better than twice as fast as they generated during the day, and since Phobos spun so swiftly across the sky. Dean Moore got the attack just about the time Mars Center was released. Dean Moore immediately began seeking for the source of it, somewhere on Phobos, but where? The Myrans were experts at camouflage. Dean Moore Station, realizing the menace, immediately rayed the projector. They tore up a great deal of harmless rock with their huge UV rays, but the bomb device continued to throw one bomb each five seconds. When Dean Moore operated from Phobos's position, Mars Center was exposed to the deadly constant drain. A day or two later, the bombs were coming one each second and a half, for more ships had joined in the work on Phobos. Greshka Kay saw the work was going nicely. He knew that now it was only a question of time before those magnetic shields would fail, and then the whole fort would be powerless. Maybe it might be a good idea, when the forts were powerless, to investigate instead of blowing them up. There might be interesting and worthwhile pieces of apparatus, particularly the UV beams apparatus. End of chapter 10